Welcome to the Human Performance Podcast. Here we talk about everything to do with human performance and how leaders and organizations can get the best out of themselves and their people. I'm your host, Alex Young. My guest on the podcast this week is Dr. Lance Black. Lance is the Associate Director of the Texas Medical Center's Innovation Program where he draws on his extensive military, medical, and engineering expertise to support innovative healthcare technologies. During his time in the armed forces, Lance implemented safety protocols for F-22 stealth fighter pilots and their crews, and went on to utilize his background in biological engineering to understand how human performance and patient rehabilitation can be enhanced through medical device innovation. We discuss stealth pilot training, the importance of innovation, and how machines can help augment human performance. Hey Lars, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Alex. Thanks for having me. Great to catch up. Um, For anyone who might not know your backstory, uh, I found it amazing when we first met and you were sort of telling me little bits and pieces about it, but would you be able just to explain to the listeners um, I guess, everything that you've sort of done in, in your career in medicine and beyond. Thanks for that. Yeah, I, I appreciate the accolades. I, um, it's not really a well-planned pathway. I kind of, you know, stumbled across a lot of different things of interest and kept an open mind throughout my academic career and it's led me to an interesting place. It started uh, as an undergrad. I, I, I loved uh, movies and especially I loved the Terminator series. And there was this one episode or one movie, Terminator 2, where you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger reveals this endoskeleton. And then for some reason, it was like, man, that's what I want to do with my life. I want to build robotic arms. And that was the one thing that led me into biomedical engineering as an undergraduate. Of course, uh, I had a, a strong background in math and science, and, and I, I knew I was going to end up in some kind of technical field. So I went into biomedical engineering really to try to understand, like, what, what does that even mean? What are the career options? What could I do with that? Could I build real cool, really cool androids? Uh, and through that process, I actually met a patient who suffered from post-polio syndrome, um, which led to this really interesting student project where I, I designed an orthotic or a leg brace for him. That's where I started to kind of fall in love with this, like, man, you can use engineering to solve interesting healthcare problems. Uh, and I can talk more about that particular case in a minute, but that's what led me to med school. Uh, and once I was in medical school, I, I was just, once again, kind of I feel like I'm always just exploring, right? I'm not, I'm always uh, just somebody who's, who's looking into what the possibilities are. I didn't, I never had this like definitive plan. I want to do this. And I'm ultimately going to be, you know, this kind of physician who's going to do this, this, and this. I've had those plans come and go, but they just never stuck with me. So I really went through, I mean, it was my fourth year of med school before I decided, Hey, I think I like a little bit of everything. I, I like surgery. I like OBGYN. I like family practice. And I didn't even know what I was going to do until I had to, until I had to select a specialty. And so um, I knew that I was going to go into the military because I'd already received a, a military scholarship. And I thought, you know, as a military physician, what better way to have, a, a, you know, a plethora of skills. And so I went into family medicine with the intent of thinking I can, you know, do a little bit of everything. And if I choose so, maybe I can specialize later. So I went into uh, a military residency in the Air Force, studied family medicine, had some great experiences around treating wounded warriors, amputees, and soldiers that are coming back from the Afghanistan war. And that's another topic we can definitely cover later, but that really had a strong impression on me. 
and how healthcare once again can combine and merge with engineering solutions. Um, I practiced as a family medicine physician after residency for several years, as well as a flight medicine surgeon or a flight surgeon uh, in the Air Force. Um, I took care of pilots, F-22 pilots, and I was attached to their squadron for a few years. And then once my commitment to the military was complete, I started to think about what my career looked like in the future. I had all these great experiences and, and variety of such that I just, I didn't know what it, what it meant. Like it, didn't, it wasn't a natural next step for me. So I actually thought about how can I really survey possibilities and understand where I fit best as a clinician, as an engineer, as somebody who's interested in design. So I actually went back to school and studied design, industrial design for a year at Georgia Tech and then ultimately switched over to another master's program called Biomedical Innovation and Development, which is focused on how do you take an idea from an idea or from like a sketch on a napkin all the way through to uh, a usable medical device, a technology that's treatable or used for, for patient uh, treatments. And so that one year was super eye-opening and showed me just like the uh, cornucopia of choices an engineer and clinician has and really affecting change in the healthcare setting. And that's when I also started working for a product development firm out of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, that's ultimately what led me here to Houston is an opportunity to work with startup companies in the medical device and digital health space. Uh, I have family in Houston, so I was always interested to see what was happening. TMC, Texas Medical Center, the world's largest conglomerate of health systems was very attractive to me because I knew that there was such incredible healthcare being given there that there was, had to be something happening on the innovation side. And that's when I came across TMC Innovation. And once again, I'd love to go into deep uh, detail about that as well. But, but ultimately what I'm doing now is working with startups like yourself and Bernie, uh, great startups that have some very interesting traction that are on the forefront of, of healthcare in the future and get to work with them to figure out how to best implement their technology into our great health systems. And I guess yeah, at an early stage, obviously you're combining engineering. Um, what were you, I mean, you, you mentioned kind of like the Terminator and some, some of the films that have inspired you, which, which is a good way to start the podcast. Um, but I mean, what were some of the things within healthcare where you saw there was a lot of crossover with engineering? Well, it started with a project that I did uh, as a senior in engineering, biomedical engineering. I met this patient who had post-polio syndrome and what he suffered from symptomatically was an occasional giving out of his leg. So, you know, he would just be walking along and then randomly his leg would get out and he would fall. And as he was getting older, obviously that was becoming more of a concern. And so he went to his physician and his physician said, you know, I don't really have a good treatment for this. I can put you in a leg brace um, and that will prevent you from falling, but then you'll have to wear the leg brace because you don't know when your leg's gonna get out. And so he had to wear this leg brace and as a, his job as a land surveyor, he had to do a lot of walking and he just suffered from lower back pain, hip pain, just very inconvenient to wear this leg brace. So he came to his engineering team of students and said, can you design a leg brace that allows me to have full range of motion, but then catches me if I fall. And so we're like, hey, that sounds like a seatbelt. You know, a seatbelt will only enact or lock if you get into a car wreck. Otherwise it's a full range of motion. You can lean forward, et cetera. So we, we did just that. We designed a seatbelt knee. And it allowed him to walk. And if he experienced some form of acceleration that was uncharacteristic of a normal gait, then he would lock. And so in this case, it would catch him for his fall and he would prevent, you know, that kind of um, uh, outcome. That, that one, like, engineering and healthcare just all of a sudden just kind of opened up where I felt like this is what I'm meant to do. This is what's really interesting for me. I'm solving problems that matter. 
I'm solving problems that I really care about. Uh, and I have a family history of like health problems, not, not personally, but in my family that, that really kind of made me want to be in healthcare. And I saw I can use my technical skill sets to really have a, have an impact. And, and so that's kind of what opened up that door where engineering meets healthcare for me. And then now through my career, I always look for that, that, uh, that merging of those two different worlds. I think it's really interesting because obviously my background in uh, trauma and orthopedic surgery, it's, it's, I always find it really rewarding on the engineering side that you can immediately impact someone uh, with, you know, solving a mechanical or, or physical problem and really like change their life um, for the better. Um, are there any particular kind of devices that you've seen that have sort of, you know, come out where, where you've been absolutely like you had your mind blown at how helpful they are to patients? I, I see them all the time, Alex, and I'm, I mean, I can, I can talk about Verdi. I mean, that's one obvious example, but I see a multitude of startup companies that come through that use some sort of, it doesn't even have to be, you know, like a physical engineering product. It can be something that's digital, that impacts the way that we think, that impacts the way that, you know, um, we, we get through depression, for instance. So I'm, I'm kind of like inundated with the technology and it's honestly very hard for me to like pick one that I'm like, oh, this one made a big impression on me because I'm, I'm kind of used to that level of just seeing things that are going to change the way that we practice medicine in the next five or 10 years on a daily basis. I think what's, what's notable about that is that it's not just about that technology or about that idea. It's really about, and you know this more than anybody, it's about that team that's going to drive that forward. There's so many great ideas that never make it. And there's so many mediocre ideas that do make it. And it has a lot to do with the business. It has a lot to do with the individuals that are passionate about moving it forward. And that's why I'm excited to be at TMC Innovation because, you know, engineering is one thing, healthcare is another thing, but really those two things will never make it together unless there's somebody that's willing to put a business, sustainable business model around it. And quite frankly, make it something that, you know, brings value to not just the patient, but brings value to the health system, brings value to those that are paying for the healthcare. Um, so that that's that's where I I get most excited about is is the, the innovation in the business model or the innovation in being able to to bring something to life. Um, but yeah, we can nerd out about technologies all day long. I love I love exoskeletons. I love prosthetics that now have some crazy amounts of capabilities from sensoring to to actually you know boosting human performance. I, I love all of that stuff. But um, but really, it's it's seeing those those teams drive home. Uh, those types of technologies that gets me excited. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm super jealous of your job actually at, at the Texas Medical Center um, and and all that cool uh, you know tech and and all the problems you get seeing solved. Um, but in your office in the Texas Medical Center, you do have uh, one notable uh, sort of trophy, which is your flight helmet. Um, and <laughs> yeah. I always found that just awesomely cool um, when, I, when I sort of first met you. How did you, you know, firstly, why did you go into a career in the military and, and in particular in, in sort of flight medicine? You're not supposed to talk about that because I stole that from the military. <laughs> 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 it's kind of illegal for me to have. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, so, so when I got into family practice, I realized very quickly that I didn't want to be seeing 25 patients every day for the next 25 years of my life. I, I, I recognize it almost immediately. Like this is, I need to figure out some way to pull in my engineering interests, my design interests, my business interests into, you know, a career that was more supportive of, of, of those interests. Right. Um, 
And so, you know, people talk about burnout. I, I never got to the point to where I wasn't burned out. I kind of, from day one, knew, like, okay, this is not what I want to do. So what I ended up looking for is opportunities within the Air Force to really just explore different ways of being able to practice medicine. One of those ways was flight medicine or flight surgery, uh, is what we call it in, in, in the Air Force. And what that is, is essentially you're kind of a team doc for uh, pilots. So as you would for a basketball team or as you would for maybe a football team, you have a doc assigned to a group of individuals who are focused in one particular mission. In this case, I got attached to what's called an F-22 fighter squadron. F-22 is one of the high-performing jets in the Air Force armamentarium. Uh, I got additional training before making that move. And additional training was understanding the conditions that those types of pilots face. I got to be put into a centrifuge. I got to fly back seat in a lot of different jets. I got to understand the training they went through. In fact, even got to do some of my own flight, flight hours, about 10 of them. And got to this experience of a light touch of like, hey, from a human performance perspective, these are the things you need to consider when treating these individuals. R rapid deceleration, uh, pulling G-forces, high altitude, uh, pressure differentiation, things that you normally wouldn't treat in a, in, a, in a regular patient that doesn't have those experiences. And so my job was to ensure the safety and well-being of the pilots within that squadron. I got to see a lot of just very interesting ways where the technologies or the environment greatly impacted their ability to perform. And just if you don't, if you don't know, uh, you know, jet pilots in the Air Force are kind of like the, the elite. They're the ones who do the best in school. They're the ones who do the best in flight training, but they're also in of themselves, like really high performers. Most of them could probably pass for professional athletes. I mean, these are high performers just in general. And so it's not like I'm treating brittle diabetics or, you know, somebody with COPD. I'm treating athletes who the very, a very small thing can really impact their career. And one of the things that we saw or that I got to be part of was an investigation around why some of these high performers were experiencing hypoxia in flight. Hypoxia, as you know, is a desaturation in oxygen. So it's the body's ability to provide oxygen to the rest uh, of the body, the lung abilities. And we didn't quite understand like these healthy individuals were dipping down to like the 70s and 80s. Normal, as you know, is 97% above. And if you start to dip down low enough, you can have all kinds of symptoms from hysteria to color changes to you know forgetfulness. As you can imagine, having that kind of symptomatology in the middle of a high performance jet, especially a single seater jet, right? You're by yourself is not where you want to be. And so the Air Force did the right thing. They grounded the planes until we could try to figure this out. And I got to see like what went into that. We looked at the design of the mask. We looked at the you know filtration system. We looked at the onboard oxygenation system. We looked at all kinds of things, everything down to the clothes they were wearing. And at the time, and I don't know where the investigation ended up re resulted because I left before it had a chance to do so. At the time, they thought it was part of the G-suit, which is this thing that squeezes your chest and your legs when you pull G-forces. What it was thought to have happened was after you pull the Gs, you can pull up to nine, you know, 10 Gs in F-22. That's like you running a sprint very fast. You have to tense up every single muscle very tightly so that blood doesn't pull into your lower half and it stays in your brain. Well, these garments help do that. They squeeze your body. But as soon as you're done pulling the Gs, you're kind of like taking deep breaths and you're just like panting. And if you're having these 
this corset effect, essentially squeeze your chest while you're trying to take deep breaths. You can imagine that can cause some lightheadedness, hyperventilation, and ultimately what we thought can cause even hypoxia. And so it, it, and it came down to just how the G suit was fitted. It was working fine. It did everything that the engineer said it should do. And it did everything it was supposed to be doing, but physiologically when it, when it met the patient, it was having problems. If it wasn't fitted right, or if the patient was of a different stature, those kinds of things really became critical. And that really just, in my mind, helped solidify and focus on how impactful the design of different devices can have on high performance. Uh, and, like, you know, we were talking about this earlier. If you are a marathoner, the, the difference of one millimeter thickness in your sole of your shoe can have a huge impact. But if you're the everyday person who jogs every once in a while, you don't even notice that you would never notice the one millimeter difference, right? But I got really interested to understand, like, how does how does design affect the way that we practice medicine as physicians? And so I started pulling that knowledge set into my everyday practice and realized, I mean, stupid things like um, the EMR, electronic medical record, how it, it bothered me that I was having to spend so much time on it and it wasn't really helping me. It wasn't helping me be a better physician. It was actually pulling me away from the patient. This is a technology that's making things worse for me. It's like, why in the world would I do that? Uh, and I, I remember very succinctly one patient where I prescribed her uh, Synthroid, you know, thyroid replacement hormone, and I gave her a higher dose when I should have given her a lower dose. And thankfully, I caught it before it actually had any kind of bad outcomes. But I'm like, man, why would this EMR ever allow me to do that? It should have sent up a red flag. She said, wait a minute, you just documented this and you're doing this. And it just made me realize, like, you know, my competency to some extent is determined by the technology that I'm using. And so it really got me interested in working with companies that are looking to impact change on the, on the healthcare record side, electronic side, all the way to the device side. So I know it's a long answer, but, but the, it was just a really interesting parallel that I saw in the human performance related to, to the jet and what I saw in, in my everyday practice as a clinician. Oh, hundred um, percent. And I, I guess you know, from that example with um, a pilot in and uh, you know in the F twenty two, I mean, one of the things that's come up again and again on this podcast for human performance is the collection of data. So, are, are the pilots kind of under like continuous monitoring when when they're in flight, or is it is it something you're just testing under kind of test conditions? Really, when, when no, they're... it's def- definitely the former. And I was shocked to see. I mean, you're talking about a high stress situation where you know potentially you're in combat fighting a, uh, in a small cockpit that not only are you having to fly the jet, but they're having to constantly monitor and looking at their, their computers. I mean, they're, they're like typing full keyboards in their jets and really understand like what is the, the layout? How does the theater look for them? Because as you know, the F-22 capabilities are far and above other jets. And with those additional capabilities requires a lot more data that has to be processed by the human, which is the, the centerpiece of it all. So they're having to, to really delve through a multitude of layers of information in order to not to, to, to be effective in flight, not to mention flying aircraft. I mean, flying aircraft is like secondary. I mean, we talk about tech, it's funny, we talk about texting and driving. I mean, these pilots are doing much more than texting and they're flying, right? And, and they're middle of combat. And so they, they have to be able to do that in order to um, utilize all the resources that aircraft is capable of. Uh, for an example, is, is F-22 is very capable in its ability to assess where other jets are. So it's no longer like you're flying and you're looking for your enemy 
and shooting at the enemy directly, you're, you're, you're aware of your environment and all multi-dimensions. And you're trying to understand how to adjust your flight pattern accordingly so that you can, you know, attack at the appropriate angle or at least alert others within your pod to attack at the appropriate angle. So you're, you're just taking on all kinds of information. You're doing these calculations, some in your head, some in the computer, but you're doing this simultaneously. And that's what, you know, I, I didn't realize until I worked with a lot of these pilots. I mean, they're high performers intellectually and physically, and they're, 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 they're pushed to the limit on both sides. So it, it was really interesting. And, and I, here I was flying backseat sometimes in a 1960s, you know, T-38, a trainer craft. And I'm just like doing everything I can to hold on to not vomit, much less think about <laughs> what it is I can be doing as far as flying strategically. So, yeah, I, I was, I got a lot of respect for uh, what those people are capable of doing and uh, really enjoyed working with them. And you mentioned um, hypoxia is one of the, uh, you know, the physical symptoms that the pilots would get. What about, uh, I suppose there must be quite a big psychological aspect as well, especially the ones where they're going into theater and then coming back or, or when they leave the military as well. Did you, did you see much of that in, in your role? Uh, we saw tons of that, unfortunately. We saw a lot of PTSD. We saw a lot of adjustment disorders. We saw, you know, a lot of just normal, normal mental health responses, right, to abnormal situations. And that was kind of what the mantra was, is, this is an abnormal situation and a normal response to that looks abnormal to the normal person, but it's actually a normal response to an abnormal situation. And so we had to know how to navigate that. And, and, you know, the pilots were not immune to that. Um, certainly that was a huge consideration, not just the mental health, but also like the mental fatiguing and the brain health of, of, of the individual, you know, hypoxia impacts the way you think it impacts your cognition capabilities. Uh, but that aside, I mean, there's noise fatigue that these pilots experience because they're constantly having their own comms. There is, you know, data fatigue because they're constantly pulling in all this information. There's a lot of things that impact. There's alert fatigue, as you probably know, in the hospitals, our nurses face in the ICU. If you have 27 alarms go off, how do you prioritize? There's all these things that, that require a lot of sensor kind of sometimes overload that require a lot of processing. So, we, we dealt with that a lot and we, we, you know, thankfully have a lot of preventive measures in place to help to support, uh, you know, when they go through that, so they're not experiencing it for the first time. But, you know, I mean, we do a lot of SIM training. I think this is really relevant to what Verdi's doing. I mean, it's exactly right. When you put somebody in a situation, you want to make it as close as possible to what they're going to experience in real life. We do this. We do a lot of that in, 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 in uh, the Air Force. I mean, they're doing SIM training probably three or four times a week. Uh, before they even get in an aircraft and they're only flying once a week sometimes but you know the sim training is you know full screen full screens around their 360 around their head to figure out you know where am i how do i you know uh right myself in, in, the, in the air but also everything down from like what they're feeling as far as the the cockpit has to look exactly the same as it would in flight uh the situations we put them in are real life situations that happened before so um so yeah, it, it's a it's a, a real issue that we try our best to prevent, and then also be at the ready when they do happen that we know how to treat and manage. And you know, it's thankfully my job is the easy job. I, I just have to be able to say whether or not they're, they're ready to fly from a health standpoint. And you know, if it's hey, right now you need to take a break, take a break, and then we'll reassess and we'll go after it in several weeks. And so I, I had that I had that luxury. Um, they unfortunately don't have that luxury sometimes when they're in flight and they're experiencing these things. So my job was to protect that and to really make sure that they're 
they're 100% before they go up in, in the air. Yeah, I mean, you kind of took the words out of my mouth on the, on the training side of things, because I think um, some of the, you know, the, the elements that we talk about in this podcast, which are in some cases kind of cross-sector, things like decision-making under pressure, reaction time, um, where if you can really recreate realistic environments for people to practice in, you can pick those up. And I guess, I mean, were you in the training settings, were you as a physician monitoring people's sort of health and things like that when they were under pressure or was, was that more when they were just under G-force? Usually, so we, here, well, let me, let me back up. So the answer is no. If, if they were doing a SIMS training, for instance, I, I wasn't monitoring them or it wasn't like kind of looking at them physiologically unless they had a problem. And some patients or some pilots would have issues. It, it, it may have dizziness or they may have, you know, forgotten something and they're not sure why. And so they would come to me and we talk about it. But I wasn't constantly monitoring them under training conditions. But I would say, I do want to point out, um, I thought this was a really a brilliant move by the military. The fact that I went through a lot of what they went through, even though it's a very light touch compared to what pilots go through, I'm not comparing myself, but the fact that I got to do a, you know, a centrifuge training uh, where I pulled nine G's and I got to feel it and I got to have to get approved. The fact that I got to do some flying, the fact that I got to do like, all the, all the different sims that they got to do, at least experiencing it, made it a completely different way of treating, uh, allowed me to give a completely different perspective on how to manage and treat these pilots. And so it's almost like training the trainer a little bit to be able to experience that. It, it made all the difference in how I approached and how I thought through what these these guys and girls were experiencing. So I was able to be a more effective therapist and trainer in, in that regard. So I, I just want to make a comment on that because I think that's something often we overlook. We can't, as physicians, always experience what our patients experience. It just doesn't, it's not practical. But I do think there's something to be said about that physician who has suffered from cancer and has gone through those treatments and now is treating cancer. I think there's something really special about that. And um, and, and I got to experience a little bit of that through, through flight medicine and, and I'm thankful that I did. Otherwise, it, otherwise, it's just a foreign thing to me. And I'm trying to you know, draw analogies or draw comparisons to my life. And it really just, there's not a comparison to flying in a fighter jet. There's just, it's not like a roller coaster, right? It's not like something I can point to and say, oh, it's like this. Uh, it's a whole different experience that we're not uh, naturally um, going to, to, to come across in our life. So, so that was a big, big deal for me. And that really gave me a unique perspective and trying to understand how to just apply anything in my life. So when I think about, for instance, the design of a medical device, I'm trying to think about it from how a patient would experience it. And, and since I can't necessarily experience it personally, you better believe I'm talking to hundreds of people who have experienced it and try to understand closer to what that customer discovery is going to look like. So, so that, that's, what's really important to me is like, I, I want to know what, what people are experiencing before I try to design or be part of a process where they're trying to design a device that's going to impact them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, so many great points. I mean, just, I mean, developing empathy, giving you the insight into what it's like for those individuals. And I guess as well, like reciprocally, um, I'm sure it would have given them like a huge amount of confidence in, in you, knowing that you'd kind of been through it, rather than being like, you know, told what to do or managed by someone who'd never ever like gotten a plane, right? Yeah, that, that's a big deal. Camaraderie in, there, in the military in general is a big deal. Um, and it, it was, uh, I kind of liken it to a fraternity. Uh, they, you were either in the fold or you weren't in the fold. 
In fact, they made us wear flight suits, the physicians. They made us fly at least once or twice a week with the pilots in back seat. And, you know, it's not something that if I, that I want to do. It's something that I did in order to build a rapport. And interestingly enough, um, because of the dynamic of our relationship, pilots aren't like super open. They don't want to say, hey, doc, I'm having chest pain when I fly because they know that I'll have to ground them and they, they don't want to be grounded, right? So they, they became open once you're able to establish that rapport. And that rapport is only established really because I was able to do a lot of similar activities that they did. I was in the flight trainings. I was in the, you know, the, the debriefings and the strategy uh, arrangements. And this is not my, my specialty. I had no idea what I was doing there. I was just fly on the wall. But the fact that I was there made a big impression on those pilots. And quite frankly, it was in flight that a lot of them kind of said, hey, by the way, I'd like to do the, you know, I'm having these symptoms. And like, okay, well, let's, after we land, let's go to the clinic and we'll take a look. Um, they didn't, they weren't very like, let me volunteer myself and go to the clinic uh, easily. I tell people it was like practicing veterinarian medicine. You kind of had to like <laughs> know what to look for. <laughs> they weren't going to tell you anything. You just kind of figure it out. Uh, but no, they, that, that was a really big piece of that is, you know, that building that trust. One of the things that's interesting about me, I don't know why this came up when you mentioned it, but there's something called LO. LO is a, um, a certain type of chemical that you paint on the exterior surface uh, of a jet, and that helps it to reduce its profile. So it makes it stealth to some extent, among a lot of other things and other factors. But I was also responsible for taking care of the, the, the flight crew, LO folks, anybody that was involved in what takes an airplane, it takes it to get to an airplane uh, in flight, I was involved in. So I kind of played this occupational medicine role where I was constantly looking at like, okay, this person is exposed to this chemical. How is that going to impact his or her career and his or her health? And so it, it, it was interesting. I got to learn a lot about, you know, what goes into making an airplane function. Um, and, and, you know, it's as important as the pilots are the people who are painting the aircraft or the people who are maintaining the engine. Um, and so I got to I got to experience some, some, some variety there for sure. Very cool. And, um, you, I mean, you mentioned sort of earlier some of the, um, the medical technology you, um, were doing when you were, uh, training for, uh, your medical degree. What I, I know that you've done some work with the wounded warriors. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, uh, I got a chance. So we had to specialize uh, in some top, some healthcare topic while we were going through residency. Uh, it wasn't like a fellowship or anything to that level of training, but we had to focus in one particular area within family practice. I chose to focus on amputee care, and the reason I chose to focus on that was because of you know the stories I've been telling you about engineering and human performance. I just really found it fascinating. And when you, when you, when machine meets man, right? Like, like actually connected somehow and whether it's to alleviate an amputation or whether it's to boost performance, I was just really interested in that. And so I spent some, a lot of time researching that area, but also spent some time at um, the center for the intrepid in San Antonio, Texas. And the CFI is a place where returning soldiers or wounded warriors go to get rehabilitated on multiple levels, on mental health, on pain management, on how to, how to uh, on physical therapy. It was a very interesting holistic treatment where uh, a patient, let's say a below knee amputation, would sit down and speak to five different physicians 
who would kind of round robin and talk to his physical therapist, the, the psychiatrist was there, the phys physiatrist, physical medicine rehabilitation physician, the orthopedic surgeon who did the amputation. And they would go through each physician and talk about his care in a holistic way. So it was a great, um, you know, experience for me to, to be part of that and to do that kind of rotation. What, what I found heroic in, in my experience there was the attitudes and responses of these soldiers. I mean, I, it was everything from, you know, a, a woman who suffered bilateral above elbow amputations, learning how to take care of herself in an apartment because she's single and she has to figure out how to cook, how to clean, how to use the bathroom now without, you know, arms. And from all the way to, to you know, the person who was a high-performing athlete losing their limb how can they get back into finding things that bring them joy in their life? And it was, it was really just like eye opening. but I, I started taking on this like little investigatory role. You know, at the time I was a resident and as a resident, you know, this, you're kind of shadowing a lot. You're pretending to be a doctor at some points, other times you're a student. And so you kind of go back and forth and it's like, you know, trying to figure out what the disease is and learn that way, but also trying to, just understand where your place is in the whole, the whole world of, of healthcare. And so one of the things I was looking at is like, how, how do they feel about having gone to war, come back now being in, in so many ways damaged and, and impacting their life long-term, right? This is not like an illness that they're going to get over. And so I started asking them like, we, how do you feel about it? Like, what is your, not, not, you know, mental health questions, more like, what's your mood? Like, how, what do you think? What, would you do Would you do it again? I mean, are you, are you, do you regret your time there? And not one of them told me they regretted their time and not one of them said anything negative about their time there, which is, which is crazy. I mean, these people were, you know, experiencing IEDs and, you know, great travesties and traumas. All of them said consistently that they would do it again, knowing full well that they would suffer the same consequences, which, man, I mean, that just like set me back and really made me think about, you know, uh, the mission, the military, of course, and, and what our purpose is. But also made me really think about like where people's minds are and how that's so important when we treat patients and think about where their mind is and how we can use that to really motivate um, their, their their performance, their behavior, their outcomes. And it was it was really you know you know in my mind it's like such a such a, a meaningful event um, and it really brought to light a lot of things that I now hold dear to me, which is around understanding the person and treating them as such and really having this holistic approach, not, you know, here's your disease, here's your treatment. But like, what do you think about that? Let's talk about other options. Um, I also found it a point of frustration because at that point is when I started realizing as a physician, you have so many tricks in your bag, right? Like, you know, you have this condition, I can pull out this one or this one, and we can talk about them and, and discuss them and kind of talk about what your choice is but you're not paid as a physician to be creative and come up with a new solution or a new management plan. In fact, it's very time consuming. It's very difficult. And there's a lot of just barriers to I mean, getting reimbursed, for instance. And so that, that really caused me to think about, man, I, I want to be able to be in this situation where I can, I can dream up new solutions. I can see a patient suffering and know that there's a chance that I can do something about it. I can't just, I'm like, Oh, you know what? We don't have a treatment option or, sorry, these three medications didn't work. Now you're stuck. So um, that really, that really motivated me to think outside a little bit of the box and, and kind of go after and pursue different 
career options that weren't necessarily the typical or traditional clinical pathway. And I mean, just to echo, I think, you know, I was lucky enough to go to the center for the Intrapid uh, last year. Um, I just found that, you know, for exactly the same reasons as you described, the, um, the reaction of the patients and the staff. Um, and, and actually, you know, it's a good segue into your role at TMCX because um, the, I mean, one of the amazing things was the, the amount of technology they had. So things like omnidirectional treadmills with sort of blend, oh, yeah. blended kind of like immersive technology or the kind of computer vision for assessing people's gait. Um, yeah. It was just amazing. Um, but, but that's obviously in San Antonio and up, you're up the road in Houston um, at uh, the, the Texas Medical Center, which is one of the largest, um, you know, single kind of collection of, of medical institutions on the planet. Um, talk, talk to me about how you, how you sort of got, got that job. Yeah, sure. So it, it, was, it was actually an interesting story of how I got there. I have family in Houston. And so I always told my family, by the way, I'm not going to move to Houston. As much as they try to pull me there, I was like, there's nothing happening in Houston. If I'm going to be in healthcare innovation space, I need to be on the West Coast or the East Coast. That's, that's where everything's happening, right? At least that's what I thought. Um, I had thankfully had some experience in the medical center as a college student. I did a, a, a summer rotation working on some research at, at Methodist Hospital in Baylor College of Medicine at the time. Um, and so I knew, I knew of its potential but I had no idea what was happening on the ground level. Um, and my parents were like, Hey, you should really think about here. There's, there's some great things happening at TMC. We should look into the, to these, um, these different innovation uh, initiatives. And I'm like, okay, I'll do that. And so I, you know, reluctantly started reaching out to people and then just realized very quickly that what was so unique about TMC, this consolidation of a variety of different health systems, uh, and being able to leverage that to validate technology and deploy technology, all of it, it, it almost like it was a, a light bulb went off in my mind. This is the place you want to be if you have a new technology. I mean, there's not only just the critical mass necessary to test something. I mean, 10 million patient visits per year go through this health system, but there's this variety of approaches. You have large academic medical centers you have one of the biggest VA hospitals, government-owned and operated. You have state-run facilities. You have, you know, ACOs. You have private health and nonprofit organizations. You have all these different business models that are impacting the way research is done or implementation of new technology is done. And so it's like a it's like a proving ground. And I didn't really realize that until I started seeing what TMC Innovation was about. And TMC Innovation, you know, its main goal is to find enabling technologies that can be deployed in these health systems, knowing full well that we have the patient critical mass, we have the key opinion leaders, we have a number of great researchers and physicians um, that are all co-located. I mean, it really is like, to me, if I were to go back, by the way, we're about 75 years old, total TMC is, if I were to go back 75 years, like in the time machine and say, hey, I'm going to create the utopia for healthcare innovation. I, I could not have created what happened to TMC because it was, it's almost by happenstance that it became what it is. It wasn't like somebody said, we're going to, we're going to create the, the best medical center in the world. And we're going to put all these people next to each other. That would have never worked out. It happened to be through some interesting land grab and redistribution of, 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 of foundation that people started to co-locate. We have hospital right after hospital, right after hospital, there's 21 hospitals there. There's 63, 62 institutions there represented. Um, 
just the sheer size and the sheer the fact that they're co-located has created this really interesting dynamic of collaboration and interest around innovation that I'm very excited to be part of. And Teams Innovation, I would say, is is on the forefront of that. I mean, there's been some great things historically that have come out of TMC. There's been some legacy like the artificial heart, Dr. Cooley, Dr. DeBakey. I mean, these are things that are just, they're, they're giants. They're, they're the, they're the, you know, the Mike Tysons of, of, of the uh, healthcare world. So I, those legends exist, but what we saw missing was the, the propensity for these new technologies to go to the coast to be further developed. Right, they can be validated in Houston, but the startups would spin out. They would go to Boston or they would go to San Francisco. Uh, and so we wanted to figure out a way to keep them here, but also bring in new technologies and, and, and to be able to showcase to the world that, hey, if you're thinking about healthcare, you're thinking about technology, there's no better place to test it out than Houston. And so we're kind of importers and exporters of new technology. And I, I really enjoy being at that in that position because it allows me to flex my engineering muscles, my clinical muscles, and now this kind of startup business muscle that I'm, that I'm developing uh, and, and, you know, that I think is so critical to, to sustain and, and to grow in, in the healthcare sector. So, um, yeah, I can't say enough about the position I'm in now. I kind of feel like I'm in the, in, the, in the eye of the storm. There's all these amazing things happening around me, and I'm just trying to find the right connection or the right person in place to, to, to help deploy these technologies. I mean, it's, it's one of the most amazing um, centers for, for medicine I've ever been to. As you say, it's got all these amazing kind of systems and players all, all around. At the center of it, you've got the Texas Medical Center sort of innovation and, and the accelerator buildings and all these other amazing companies in a, in a very centralized location. And I think I always joke to you, whenever I come out there, there's always a new bit being built or someone else has moved in. And it seems to be constantly updating and changing. Um, I mean, one of the things that you and everyone at the Texas Medical Center have had to cope with recently is obviously COVID. I was just wondering if you could just speak to how that's affected things, both for you at the Innovation Center and obviously the Medical Center as a whole. Yeah, of course, like everybody else, it had dramatic, it still continues to have dramatic implications on how uh, we, you know, impact how, how we practice medicine, really, I mean, just more broadly speaking. Um, when COVID started to become more of an issue in Houston, I got to, I was fortunate enough to be part of some of the conversations that were happening in between the institutions. These institutions, they're, 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 they're within two square miles. It's almost like, just for people who don't know, it's almost like a, a, a medical city in of itself. And they, they really, there's that, that city feeling, like we belong to the medical center. And so if you talk to somebody in Houston and you ask them where they're going, they may say, I'm going to the medical center. But they really may mean they're going is to MD Anderson or Texas Children's or Methodist. But they know it as an area, as, as, as much as an area as it is anything else. And, and the reason I'm bringing this all up is because I saw them rise up as a city during the COVID crisis. They came together, they started collaborating ways they've never collaborated before, sharing information they've never shared before, really making decisions in a collective way. And it was really, it's been, it's been and still is very encouraging to see how the CEOs, how other decision makers within TMC are, are, are really thinking about this collectively. Um, and, and, and you know this, I mean, some of those institutions could stand on their own. I like this, I like to compare like Mayo Clinic and Cleveland Clinic. People know those names, but there's like five Mayo Clinics in the TMC. And it's, it's ridiculous how some of these institutions, if they were independent of us, 
would have their own kind of, you know, following. MD Anderson is a great example. I mean, everybody knows MD Anderson, but it's part of the family and they act as such. And I think that's what's so great is they can bring that individual leverage power and, and put that into this more family dynamic. And, and you know, COVID, uh, as, as we're speaking right now, is even more of a situation than it was back in early uh, first quarter, March and April for us. Now it's spiking. And so people look to the city of the medical center for guidance. And what do we do as, as, a, as, a, as public health and uh, you know, managers? And so we've been instrumental in putting together data from all of our health systems that show like what our bed capacity is at or show, you know, what we're, the number of deaths, the number of discharges. And, and now we're kind of, uh, what, I, what I would say is, you know, essentially a lighthouse for our city to represent how do we respond to this COVID crisis. Um, thankfully, it's not on one institution. It's not on one hospital. We're able to take this unique position of representing healthcare in Houston as a more broad, as it more broadly applies. Uh, and so, you know, we've been, we're in conversations daily. Innovation in of itself is like, I don't want to say repurposed, but certainly has shifted a lot of its thoughts and focus on, on this COVID task force and how to respond. But more importantly, how to bring, for us, how to bring innovation into the fold. And as you know, I mean, there's a lot of great technologies that are at this early stage where they're capable of pivoting and having somewhat of a, of a COVID use case, if you will. And so we're able to leverage that in, in these conversations with the, with the clinical operations leaders, with the you know, uh, supply chain leaders, and really trying to figure out what's the best way to deploy these. So you know, I don't think our experience is unique. I think a lot of the US cities are suffering under the COVID pandemic. I think though, we're able to collect a lot of brilliant minds in a way that's more efficient than anywhere else on the planet and be able to use that information to hopefully help lift up uh, not just all of Houston, but those cities around us. Yeah, and no, it's absolutely, absolutely incredible. Um, and I've, I've been seeing you know, a lot of the, the hospital systems who um, I guess I'm on that emailing list or we're working with, like all the stuff they're doing um, has just been absolutely amazing. So hopefully, um, you know, they, they continue to sort of power through this and, and things get back to normal as, as quickly as possible. Um, just to kind of wrap up, um, what, one of the things obviously that, that I ask everyone on the podcast each week is, um, do you have an example of a human performance hero? Is there anyone um, either in uh, your own background or from anywhere else that sort of inspires you or you find, found inspiring on, on your journey? That's a tough question. I was never one of those kids who had idols or role models. Like I never had a sports hero or I don't know, maybe you could say Arnold Schwarzenegger if I had a hero. <laughs> but, <laughs> I was, uh, was going to suggest the T-1000. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my hero. Thanks, Alex. Uh, no, you know, I, I will say like my, my dad went through a pretty traumatic experience when I was growing up that had a huge impact on me as a, as a, as a child at the time and now as an adult. He broke his neck um, when I was about, I think I don't remember my age, maybe 10 or 11. And at that, you know, at that such an impressionable age, I didn't really understand what was happening, of course, but I didn't understand the implications. When the doctor told him that he was gonna be paralyzed you know, from the waist down for the rest of his life. And he spent months in, in, in the hospital. Um, I, when we talk about performance and endurance, I, I, I think about his healthcare team. I think about the physical therapists, the nurses, the doctors that like didn't know this man from anybody else, you know, as a stranger, um, but like gave them, gave him their all and like really took care of him in a way that 
you know, ultimately resulted in his ability to walk again and be, and be a fully functioning person. Um, I, I, so I, I think a lot about that. I think about those individuals. I think about that care team. Quite honestly, that has now, made, I think, had such an impression on me that I look at hospitals, I look at healthcare as a safe haven. I look at it as a place where, like, I can go to feel comfortable. And I, I think it has a lot to do with the months that I spent alongside my dad's bedside during that time. And so, yeah, I'd say that's the closest thing that I would say to a role model. I don't think that my dad would have chosen to be that in that, that, that light. But the, the care team, him, the, you know, everybody that was involved are, are role models to me and had such a huge impact on what I do now and what I did then. So, so that's probably the one thing that I looked up to say that, that I kind of hold in high regard. Well, wow, I did not know that. And what an amazing example. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely brilliant. Um, well, we, I mean, obviously, um, I absolutely love the, the Texas Medical Center and, and everything that, that you and, and the team and everyone do on the innovation side as well. Um, we love you too, Alex. <laughs> thank you. Um, just to, just to, you know, uh, put you guys over even more, um, I would highly recommend anyone listening who is in uh, the startup or um, company landscape in healthcare looks at the Texas Medical Center's uh, TMCX program um, and, and applies to that. That that's just been um, updated. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll hand over to you just to finish up to plug that and also share any of your socials or contact information. Thanks for that, Alice. Thanks for the plug. Actually, TMCX applications are open now for a medical device or digital health company that's looking to deploy an enterprise health system, there's no better place to be. Uh, you can find us online at tmcinnovation.edu. Um, you, can, you, have, you, you can Google TMC Innovation and find anything that you need from YouTube videos to explain our program to, to obviously our website. Um, you can follow us at TMC Innovation on Twitter, on LinkedIn. Uh, no, Alex, I don't have a MySpace or a Yahoo <laughs> chat room. <laughs> yeah, you don't have you're going to share, is what you mean. <laughs> but, you know, maybe we have a Snapchat. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not into all that stuff. But, uh, but, yeah. but, you know, I think Google's, you'll, you'll have no problem finding us. And please reach out to me directly if you have any questions. lblack at tmc.edu is my email. Happy to, to answer any questions or, or interests.